Well, it's just about finally here. Washington and Texas college football playoff semifinal at the Sugar Bowl. Does Washington's defense even matter in this game? I don't know that it does. You are locked on Pac-12, your daily podcast on the Pac-12 Conference. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Locked On Pack 12. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day, and your number one source to stay up to date with our media rights free and Pack 2 dominated and beloved Conference of Champions. Not much longer. We'll see that jersey on uh, the patch for football team, but there is still a game to be had. A couple, actually. But today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook. Make every moment more. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150 if your team wins. Visit fandle.com slash locked on to get started. Also, thank you for liking, commenting, subscribing wherever you listen to or watch this show. Roman Tomashoff is with me today. He's the host of uh, Locked on Huskies. He is in New Orleans, ready for the game. And Roman, here's my thinking on the defense for Washington. It's not as if they could go out and allow 50 points and win. But generally speaking, this is going to be at least largely that what people expect, a high-scoring game between Washington and Texas. And I don't think you have to come out and, and have a game in, in which Washington holds Texas in check early on the way they did against Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game because I think that when I look at Texas's defense, what their strengths are, I think Washington can go blow for blow for them. And I like Washington to win the game because they're great in one score affairs. Is that a crazy take? So the way you put it in, in the open, I was, I was definitely a little shocked by it. So I just, <laughs> just for, first of all, shout out to you. You did a great job with that, but uh, I don't, I don't think that's a crazy take. I really like where you're coming from there, but I have to disagree because I think that, Washington's defense is still going to have to find a way to make a mark on this game where there have been times where we've seen Washington's offense struggles. Spencer, one, one key example that we can point to is the third quarter against Oregon in the first matchup these two teams played back in October where the Huskies went up by 11 points. Then Im- immediately they go three and out Oregon scores. They go three and out again, Oregon scores again. So I think that Washington's defense still has to find a way to make a mark on this game. I'm really looking at the pass rush. I'm very interested to see what um, Sioux Falls edge rusher, Zach Durfee, the transfer who's finally able to play in a game is going to be able to do in this game. But I feel like it's, it's your, your overall point is correct that the defense isn't necessarily going to be the end all be all, but it needs to find a way to make one or two plays in this game, whatever it might be a sack, a turnover, just a big TFL getting a three and out at some point in the game. I think that, you know, let's say Washington does win the game. We look back on it at the very end. We're going to point to a defensive possession saying that was the turn point or yeah, that's what really sparked something for, for the Huskies. I see your point here. Here's where I'm coming from with it and why I feel that way. You know, getting defensive help is always appreciated, even for a great offensive team. I just don't feel that Texas has got enough defensively to slow down Washington entirely. You could have a couple moments. You could have sequences. If Washington goes three and out on their first possession, I'm sure keyboard warriors will be, well, see, you said Texas couldn't do this, that, and the other thing. You know, Okay, so I think that for Washington, it just isn't going to have to be 
a Washington State type performance, an Arizona State type performance. You can't be Alex Grinch coordinating USC out there. It, it, it can't be that sort of level. But I feel like as long as the Huskies defense is serviceable, I think the Texas secondary is not good enough because no one has been good enough to stop the Washington receivers when they're all healthy, which they are. As long as you can protect Michael Penix, which the Washington offensive line clearly can. I know this Texas front has got some good players. Their strength is on the interior. They were talking about that on college game day. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, so if your best players are on the interior, those aren't typically your best pass rushers. Those guys are great stuff in the run. And if they stuff Dylan Johnson, Washington will say, fine, we'll throw the ball 45 times. Sure. No, you're, you're right, because that's what we saw through the first month of the season, where when Dylan was still trying to find a way to get up to speed after you know still recovering from the knee injury he had at Mississippi State, that's what we saw. We, we saw Washington drop back 45, 50 times a game and just throw the ball over and over and over again. So you're right. That's definitely a strength of this team. We all know that. But I still think that they're going to want to find a way to establish the run because something I put out over on Inside the Huskies is uh, in Dylan Johnson. So I went back and did the math because Texas is ranked third in um, yards per carry or in allowing your uh, yards per carry allowed. And Washington has faced five defenses inside the top 20 in terms of uh, allowed yards per carry. Oregon, USC, Oregon State, uh, Arizona is one of them. And so, and so those four, plus they played Oregon twice. In those five games, Dylan Johnson has averaged 22.6 carries per game and 107 yards per game. So I still think that they're going to find a way to make sure he's involved. He's a really big part of what this offense has done. I actually got a chance to talk to him as we record this here on, on Saturday, a couple hours ago at media day. And I asked, you know, uh, what if they, they just try to say, we're going to just sell out to stop the passing game, rush three, drop eight. Cause I know you like to, to catch the ball. And he said, I really hope they do that because I want to show everything that I can do catching the ball. We've seen how, physically is as a runner he's such a talented guy and i think they're going to find a way to get him involved heavily no matter what but i think that they're going to try to find ways to get him involved mainly off tackle in terms of running the football let's talk about that washington defense and what they're facing in a texas offense that is really good and i think yeah. that the first couple quarters of this game you could have a lot of points you, you give me a couple of shall we say suspect at times though have shown flashes of teams defensively against two great offenses with great quarterbacks, great receivers, and great play callers and great play designers. Ryan Grubb and Kayla Nabor on one side, Steve Sarkeesian on the other. I think this is the sort of game that is 14-14 at the end of the first quarter. I like I I I I can see that. Remind like absolutely the the 2011 12 Rose Bowl between Oregon and Wisconsin ended up being 38-35. And at the end of the first quarter, I think it was 14-7, then one team scored at the beginning of the second quarter. That's what I feel like this game is going to be. I think the defenses can eventually settle in, and the offenses aren't going to both put up over 40 points. But I'm going to be surprised if one team is held under 30 here just because of the amount of offensive talent and great offensive coaching you have in the game. No, I I I, co I totally agree with you there because this this Texas offense they can they can really play. I know not having Jonathan Brooks is going to be a factor for them, and I'm I'm really curious to see what because we saw uh, Xavier Worthy have a couple of big drops. I know Texas fans said he had a broken hand in last year's game in the Alamo Bowl. I'm really curious to see what all AD Mitchell is going to provide in this game. But something that I talked about over on Locked On Huskies with our buddy Lars is um 
Jatavion Sanders and what he might be able to provide over the middle in terms of a Texas passing attack, because he's just a big, strong tight end where Washington has shown that they can struggle to, they, they struggle to defend that at several points during the season, the Stanford game being a prime example of that. So I think that, especially when you look at Texas on just the Texas offense, that there's going to be a lot that they can do really well, but Washington, especially with, as you said, their high flying offense can counter that really, really well. Yeah. If this is, if, if this is a race to 40, I'm very confident in Washington's ability to, to get to that point. Am I going to be able to squeeze a prediction out of you in this game, Roman? Can uh, I get it? Spencer, you, you, you know how I feel about this. I'm, I'm going to give you this because the first time I did worked out pretty well. I got Washington by three. That's that's what I'll say. Washington by three. Okay, that's a prediction. That's a you know predicting the actual final score is is rather difficult. But I I think this is a one score game. I think the betting line kind of reflects that. The line's around a four and a half in favor of Texas. Kalen DeBoer, great stat for those of you who are gamblers out there, is four and zero straight up as an underdog since he took over Washington last year. Oregon twice, Michigan State, and Oregon State. He won all of those games. So I think it's going to be a blast. I think both semifinals are going to be fun, but I'm definitely more excited for this one because uh, you're going to have more points in that game. That's all for uh, Roman today. I'll let him go prepare emotionally for uh, the sugar bowl, because I know that that's going to take quite a bit. Roman appreciate it, man. Spencer, thanks for having me. Before I get to talking about a bevy of bowl games that have played out across the Pac-12, we're going to talk about FanDuel, of course, because it's bowl season, and those two things, of course, go together like peanut butter and jelly. The NFL season is wrapping up, too, and there's still time to get in on the action with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That's $150 in bonus bets whether you win or lose, you don't even have to be right. If you're right, congratulations. If you're not, also congratulations. You still get $150 in bonus bets. Bonus bets. The app is super easy to use. They've got live same-game parlays. You can find bets in the new Explore tab as well to find everything and everything that is your heart's desire. You can make a parlay in the Parlay Hub, the best way to find popular parlays, and you can do so much more. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on and make your first bet a layup. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. I love bowl season. I really do. I still love it. Even amidst all the opt-outs and the what does the game mean and who cares and everything like that, I still love bowl season. You know why? Because I love college football. I love college football. And pretty soon, very soon, dare I say, There isn't going to be any college football to watch on our television screens, and we're going to move into purely off-season discussion, which is going to be fun. There will be things like realignment and the portal and recruiting and all that good stuff, but it'll be a long time without college football. So I've been enjoying bowl season fullest to my heart's desire. So Oregon State played in the Sun Bowl against Notre Dame. Let's just say... It did not go very well. In fact, dare I say, it went poorly. Now, on the one side, you had Oregon State without its number one and number two quarterbacks. That'd be the guy behind center or under center, as often is the case for the Beavs. You had uh, the leading tackler on the team gone. Key defensive back also gone. Leading rusher not there. 
and Anthony Gould was not there, the number two receiver to Silas Bolden. So, and and frankly, there were games this year where Gould yeah, was the better of the two. Like it was kind of a you know hot hand sort of deal. So Oregon State was surely short-handed. So too was Notre Dame. They had a backup quarterback. They didn't have their running back. Audrick Estime was a really good player. They were without several other starters. This game came down to one particular factor, and it was not the quarterback, Ben Goldbranson. On one sideline, Oregon State's, you had an interim coaching staff. And on the other side, you had a full-time coaching staff. That is what that game looked like to me. So it was certainly not an encouraging effort from the Beavs. I thought they would be more competitive. I actually thought that they would win the game. That was my prediction. Call me a pack two homer. But I thought they'd win the game because I said, well, Notre Dame has played with Sam Hartman all year. I don't even know what they've got at the backup quarterback position. Oregon State went 7-1 and one last year with Ben Goldbranson starting. Surely that's advantage beeps. Then it became very clear what I just laid out. There was a coaching mismatch there, and that's okay. I think for Oregon State fans, it was perhaps easy to jump to the conclusion of, wow, this is not encouraging as we try to navigate the 2024 season. Is this how competitive the team's going to be? What was this? How, should we worry Without your two starting tackles, third-string quarterback, who was a backup last year, but again, third-string this year, all the absences, I think the head coach being absent was the most considerable factor. That was the most important reason that Oregon State was utterly uncompetitive in the game. And really from the jump, they couldn't do anything offensively. The defense eventually gave up 40 points. That's just what it came down to. Notre Dame had a better game plan, better coaching staff, and that's all right. I don't think it is reflective of what Oregon State is going to be in 2024 under Trent Bray, really at all. If you had a sliver of negative sentiment about that game, if you're an Oregon State fan listening to or watching this show, and you think, boy, I thought they'd be better than that, I get it. You could have a sliver of negative sentiment. I would not look at that game, given the number of missing pieces, most notably the head coach, and feel anything other than, well, that's a disappointing end to the year which it absolutely is, because Oregon State, just a few weeks ago, was 8-2 and two and ranked number 11 in the college football playoff rankings. I think the eight people might have had them at number 10. That's where they were sitting. They had quality wins over Utah. They played a decent UCLA team at home pretty well. They were beating the doors off of people who they were much better than. They looked like a really good team. And there was the opportunity right in front of them to go to the Pac-12 championship game, a place that they have never and will never reach in the conference's former iteration, now former iteration, I should say. And they go lose by two to Washington, get blown out by Oregon, get blown out by Notre Dame. And suddenly you look up and Oregon State ends the year eight and five, eight and five. Doesn't feel like an eight and five football team. That's because it wasn't an eight and five football team. And so I think that for Oregon State fans, this is ending on a really sour note and it stinks. 100% It is not a good feeling. But to say that that negative sentiment, bowl season can sometimes be a way to set the stage for next year, which is the case for Arizona, as I'll get to in a moment. I don't think that's the case for Oregon State. I think they're kind of the opposite where the bowl game was, okay, you really didn't have a chance here. When you line up all the factors and all the missing players, 
Notre Dame had more talent, and Notre Dame's got their head coach, who is their full-time guy. Trent Bray was at the game, and he was watching on the sidelines. Can't He cannot have liked what he saw in that particular game. And you know what? If that Sun Bowl does nothing but serve as motivation for Oregon State head coach Trent Bray to coach his butt off and get his team to play their butts off in 2024, then it might all have been worth it. But it is certainly a strange feeling. It's got to be a strange feeling to go from well inside the top 15 to suddenly, yeah, it was an 8-5 and five season. Did it feel like an 8-5 season? No, not for uh, the majority of it. And yet that's what it ends up being. Like I always enjoy saying, stats are a starting point, not an end point. So bowl season is kind of the same thing. You can look at the results of a game and say, hey, that's a sign of this based on the score. But then you have to ask the important questions. Who played? Who didn't play? Who didn't play? Nice English, Spencer. That was really good. Who played? Who did not play? Who was available? Who was not available? What coach was there? What coach was not there? That's where you have to be with bowl season, which is a good segue into the Alamo Bowl. A great win for the Arizona Wildcats. 38-24, to I believe, was the final score over Oklahoma. They were actually down in the game. They jumped out to a 13-0 lead. Oklahoma came storming back, and then Arizona went on a big run. And Noah Fafita, who won the starting quarterback job this year, from Jaden Delora, who got injured, and you know he, he's going to be in the transfer portal. I expect him to get picked up by a high-level Mountain West or G5 team, maybe even a Power 5 school, but I could see him going to a Boise State, for instance, and just thriving, absolutely thriving, and, and helping that team contend for a conference title next year. But for Arizona and Noah Fafita to have gone into that game which was in the state of Texas, so basically a home game for Oklahoma. There were some Arizona fans that made the trip. I love seeing that because, as I said, I'm a traditionalist. I love bowl season. Arizona goes into that game and walks away a winner. Did you know that the Wildcats have won seven consecutive football games? Seven consecutive football games. This is a team going into the Big 12 on what you might call an absolute heater. They have beaten some good teams. Washington State was rolling until Arizona came to town, took the wind out of their sails. Maybe you could argue that game and the way in which Arizona dominated them 44 to 6 in one of the surprising scores in Pac-12 play all season long. You could argue that that derailed Washington State's season, sent them into a place they didn't think they would go after a 4-0 start, which is a 5-7 and year. Arizona went on the road and played like that. Arizona also played Utah at home, a good Utah team who did not play well in the bowl game against Northwestern, though Northwestern has got a good football coach that just went from 1-11 and to 7-6. and six. Pretty sure it was 7-6. No, it was 8-5. and 8-5? and five? Yeah, I think it was 8-5 and five, uh, for, for Northwestern. For Arizona to be on a W7, to have a 10-win season, which hasn't been done in almost a decade – down in Tucson is reflective of how good Jed Fish is. And in a moment, I'm going to lay out just how impressive the coaching job is that he has performed over the last three seasons with the Arizona Wildcats. Do you remember what Jed Fish came into at Arizona when he came down from the NFL to take the Wildcats head coaching job? 
Do you remember what the situation was? If not, allow me to jog your, your memory. The Arizona football program, for all intents and purposes, had bottomed out. They had lost 12 consecutive football games. Let just, just think about that for a moment. 12 games in a row. Home, road, quality of opponent did not matter. In Jed Fish's first year, they lost a game to NAU, Northern Arizona. That's not even a great program at the FCS level. That is where the program was. It was in that bad of shape. They lost 12 consecutive games. The losing streak got all the way up, if memory serves, to 20 because they started the year 0 and 8. They won one singular game. For just two years later, at a non traditional football power, for Jed Fish to have turned the Wildcats into a 10 win team that can go into Texas, which is pretty close to a road game, against a 10 win Oklahoma team, granted, with a backup quarterback. That is all fair. That Oklahoma team is not as good without Dylan Gabriel, who will be Oregon's quarterback next year, as they go into the Big Ten. I'm fully aware of that. But the fact that you can even have the conversation, by the way, Noah Fafita was a backup quarterback this year once upon a time, but again, situations very, very different there. I understand that. Arizona was favored for a reason. The fact that Arizona went from 1-11, losing to a mediocre, at best, FCS program to a 10-win season, a seven-game winning streak. And by the way, all three losses this year by one possession, just one. They lost in overtime to Mississippi State, almost had a first down on the scramble on fourth and long. They lost by two points to USC, could have won the game. Some would argue should have won the game. USC should have won it with a field goal at the end of regulation, though. So that, that of course, as always, often goes both ways. Washington played them to a seven-point game. That team is not only good. They are, they are borderline great. That's what they were this year. And when you look at what they are returning next year as they go into the Big 12, a Big 12, by the way, that is not supremely talented. You're losing Texas and Oklahoma. Yes, you're bringing in Utah. We'll see what Colorado does. Arizona State is on the ascension, but that is going to take, I think, another year or two. But I do think Kenny Dillingham eventually gets it going down there in Tempe. To be a 10-3 and football team and to carry a seven-game winning streak. For those who think bowl season doesn't mean anything, ask the guys in that locker room if that Alamo Bowl meant anything to them. Ask him if they think carrying a seven-game win streak into next season means anything to the culture that Jed Fish has established, because I think it does. And I think that he's just done a remarkable job. I was trying to think of the equivalent of taking over a team that's on an L12 and two years later, in your third season, winning double-digit games. And I couldn't come up with one that's currently on an L12 because, to my knowledge, nobody's on a 12-game losing skid. There's an FCS team that, that I'm aware of, Western Illinois, that I believe went winless this year. But I think that for Arizona to have gone in this direction at this speed is really impressive. It's really impressive. And here's the other impressive thing. Jed Fish, I talked on this very show about how he was going to be a coaching candidate. He would be a target for other major jobs. 
Arizona's kept him around. He has a sufficient body of work to go for a job that has more prestige, that might have more money, a greater history of conference championships. But he's sticking it out at Arizona, and I think it's because he knows going into the Big 12 next year, they can be a contender. If you've got Noah Fafita at quarterback, Tetaroa McMillan at wide receiver, Jedfish clearly knows how to scheme a ground game better than he regularly gets credit for. I think that that is a team that can contend for a Big 12 championship. Arizona football can absolutely contend for a Big 12 championship in 2024. You look at the defensive improvement, you look at the offensive production, and the growth of that culture into a winning culture has been phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And they've got their guy at quarterback. And there was a tweet from Blue Bloods Bias. I have no idea who that guy is. But when you're getting called out by the parents of the player that you're tweeting something about, you're not doing it right. Because he tweeted out, whoever he is, Blue Bloods Bias. And I'm not a fan of people that hide behind anonymity online. I, of course... Don't really do that, as those of you watching on YouTube can plainly see. But he tweeted out that, uh, you know, Noah Fafita and Tetero McMillan could command humongous NIL offers. And he put a big picture of the two of them with the word portal on it. It's just to get clicks and attention. He probably even likes that I'm talking about it here on the show. But what I want to talk about is the response from Les Fafita, Noah's father. And he responded to him. And said, this is ridiculous. This is how misinformation gets spread. I'm probably helping him by clicking on it and retweeting it, which is true. And it's the unfortunate world. But it's nice to see him pushing back on something that he believes is not true. So if you've got those two guys back next year, those are the cornerstone pieces of a really good offense that was really good this year and could be even better next year. I mean, Ted Tyrell and McMillan's going to the NFL after 2024. Dude is an absolute stud. But... I just want to bring this back to Jed Fish because the equivalent of what he's done at Arizona makes me think of Nevada. So Nevada had a 13-win season with Colin Kaepernick long ago in the whack. Since they've gotten to the Mountain West, they haven't made a ton of noise. They've had some good seasons every now and then, but they fall down pretty regularly. Ken Wilson was hired there from the Oregon defensive staff, and he's gone 4-20 and in two years. Imagine the coaching job and how we would discuss, as I think we correctly are doing with Jed Fish, any individual that comes in to that Nevada job, if Ken Wilson were to be relieved of his duties as head coach, and all of a sudden, just just three in year three, it's a 10-win program that's beating a legitimate blue blood in college football in a bowl game. That's pretty good. I know there are different comparisons, the Mountain West and everything. But if 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 in year three, if a new coach was hired in Nevada and in year three, he was knocking off Boise State in the Mountain West championship game. That's the, that's the closest equivalent I can find. Jed Fish deserves his flowers because the coaching job that he has done has been nothing short of remarkable. I mean, you got a place that has got some recruiting talent in his backyard and he's done a good job recruiting. Tetaroa McMillan, highest rated recruit in program history. Guess what? <laughs> He's really good. Bringing in Jacob Cowing from UTEP, recruiting Noah Fafita, bringing in Jaden Delora, who he wrote a very nice message to because he's been such an instrumental part of the rebuild. And, you know, it's, it's 
Fafita's got the keys to the cars now. I think that Fish has done a fantastic job. I'm glad Arizona is able to keep him because next year going to the Big 12, they're going to be a lot of fun. They're going to be a lot of fun. They can score points. I think Fish is a great play caller. I think the way he balances the offense, uses NFL concepts, but doesn't feel rigid or outdated with his schemes or anything like that. I think he does a really, really nice job across the board, and I can't wait to see what they do next year because going into that Big 12, boy, Utah would be my betting favorite because Cam Rising is back. Arizona would be up there. Oklahoma State and Kansas State, I think, are good teams, good programs, good coaches that have you know got some quarterback things maybe to figure out, less so at Kansas State. But those are kind of my top four teams as I, you know, as an outsider, look at the Big 12. I mean, Colorado, they'll be better. Are they going to be championship level? Eh, I don't know. We saw this year they were pretty far away from it. But Arizona, boy, they were a lot better than everybody thought, even better than I thought, and I was high on them before the year. Appreciate everyone listening. I will see you next time. And until then, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.